Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number nine of our discussion of the War of the Jewels. And tonight, we are still mostly going to talk about dwarves. Um, looking forward to really getting into the meat of the, um, of the Concerning Dwarves essay that Tolkien wrote. Uh, so uh, that is uh, uh, that is where we are headed tonight. I'm really excited about it. Um, I wanted to uh, just mention a couple a couple moot things tonight. Um, number one, uh, wanted to remind folks of our our next upcoming moot. We just had text moot recently, which was delightful, uh, and we have another moot coming up: Maple Moot in Toronto, our very first Canadian moot, which is happening in May on the 20th of May uh, in Toronto. Very excited about that. I uh, can't wait to go to... Uh, this is not only the first time I've been... Uh, we've been in Canada, but it's the first time I will ever have been to uh, Toronto. So uh, very excited uh, to do that. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is I wanted to ask people about New Orleans. We're thinking of going to New Orleans for a moot. And I'm just wondering... If anyone would show up, if we did, uh, it's a part of the country we've never been to, and we think it would be a fun place to have a moot. Um, but uh, I am, uh, I, I am, I am interested to see what people think about a New Orleans moot. So I want to float the idea of a New Orleans moot uh, and see, uh, uh, see, see, see what would happen if we did that. We're thinking about possibly sometime in the winter. Uh, like maybe December or early January. Um, uh, but, um, yeah. So you, th you think we'd capture East Texans still? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it is Texas adjacent. So we could get a little, uh, uh, a little, uh, uh, you know, draw in some of our friends from, uh, from Texas perhaps to join us for, for another moot, uh, out there. But um, anyway, it would be it would be it would be a lot of fun. I think a I think a New Orleans moot uh, would be would be good. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Definitely. Definitely thinking about that. Um, all right. Uh, so I want to jump um, back. Um, I want to jump back into the into the text here. One thing I wanted to start off with. So first, first a review, first a review and then a correction. And then we'll we'll get into the text. So review the history of Tolkien's dwarves, right? So remember when, when we're talking about the first dwarves, we're talking about Tolkien's dwarves 1.0. We mean his original conception of the dwarves, which was as children of Morgoth. Uh, they were they were right next. They were siblings to the orcs in the very very first uh, version of the dwarves. Then we, in dwarf 2.0 was. Basically, the kind of dwarf that showed up at Bilbo's doorstep, right? Which was dwarves who are not heroes, right? But some of whom might not be, you know, uh, uh, might be decent enough folks if you don't expect too much. Uh, they were merchants, not craftsmen. It was specifically mentioned that they did not make things, especially beautiful things. Um, but they had, like the dwarves, again, in The Hobbit, a very high opinion of the value of money um, and were great. Were, they were great merchants and sales, merchants and salesmen, not great craftsmen. Um, uh, so 
that's kind of dwarf 2.0. They're 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 on the rise, right? They're getting better, but they're they're still not. And then I was arguing that it really is during the course of the writing of the Hobbit. It is like when we get to Thorin's deathbed, when Thorin Oakenshield throws down the walls that he has erected before the gates of the king uh, in Erebor, and he charges out. Uh, in order to, and then calls the elves and the humans to come and join him in his charge against the goblins. Um, that's really the moment, I think, when we're shifting from Dwarf 2.0 to Dwarf 3.0. And Dwarf 3.0 is sort of where we are during the uh, during the, the writing of the whole Lord of the Rings. Gimli is a 3.0 dwarf. Um, but what is that exactly? What is What does that mean? You know, what does that look like when it's at home is still a question that Tolkien hadn't really figured out. And so the section that we're in in the later Quintus Silmarillion, this is now after the writing of the Lord of the Rings, him trying to work some of this stuff out and figure out some of the details as he had still done very little world building. He had answered very few questions about dwarves and where they came from and what they were like and what their culture was like and all of these other things. Even while writing The Lord of the Rings, he knows relatively little about this. And this brings me to the correction. Um, last time I was say I I was mistaken about something. I said last time that I believed that the Concerning Dwarves essay was written in the 1951 period. Remember, there are those two Silmarillion writing periods, right? The first one, the big productive 1951 time when he's finished writing The Lord of the Rings, but before he's published it, when he is still entertaining hopes and plans that the Silmarillion would be published alongside it. And then you have the later, late 50s, early 60s time period when he was doing a lot more but by that time, he was much more casual. He was not working against a deadline, right? And that's one of the places where we see him doing a lot of the world building. Like all of that math he was doing about elvish gestational periods and genealogies and things like that from the nature of Middle-earth. That's all in that late 50s, early 60s time period when he is now with a good deal more leisure, right? Um uh, uh, sitting down and kind of developing the world building and fleshing these stories and these concepts out a little bit more. What I said last time that needs correction is that I had thought that the Concerning Dwarves essay came from the first of those two periods, from the 1951 period, which is important because it would mean that it would predate the, um, uh, the of Durin's Folk section of Appendix A in the return of the king which wasn't written until uh until until later than that um but upon going back and reviewing christopher makes it very clear that he thinks that that is not the case that this is in fact later that the concerning dwarves essay was written after it was written in 1958 most likely uh 4 years after he wrote the um the appendix a material um and that i think um puts um um that puts a uh, um a different complexion on things in particular on the relationship between the Durin's folk essay and i mean obviously it puts a, 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 it puts them in a different relationship from each other um but there's some interesting ramifications to that because we will see we will definitely see areas um concepts that he is 
dealing with in this concerning dwarves essay um, that arise in the context of the Durin's folk discussion. Um, but knowing which came first makes a big difference. You remember that passage that Christopher was talking about um, between the annals uh, and um, the Quinta, where he was saying, where, where, remember where he was saying his original theory was that uh, Tolkien wrote the annals first and then he expanded them into the later writing. This was in the context, um, I believe, of the wanderings of Hurin. Um, that that you know, sort of the, the 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 sort of shorter versions that he wrote in the annals came, and then they got expanded into the fuller narratives later on. And then Christopher said that he turned out to be wrong about that, um, and that it became pretty clear from the manuscript history that it was the longer stuff that came first, and he was actually condensing it for the annals. Right. Um, so last week, when I was. Uh, oriented improperly here. I was thinking that it was essentially something like that was happening, that he had written uh, out the concerning dwarves stuff. And then he was just sort of condensing that for the Durin's folk appendix, knowing that he didn't have time or space to include the entire concerning dwarves uh, thing uh, in, um, uh, in, in the appendix uh, of the Lord of the Rings. But it turns out that's not, in fact, the direction, right? That it does go differently. That we that it we are, we are justified in seeing the Durin's folk essay in Appendix A as an intermediary step between, basically, the narrative, um, you know, the 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 stories of dwarves that have come up to that point, and then so he's building on that. He's expanding that stuff. Um, in um, uh, in the uh, concerning dwarves essay, so that's an important thing to remember, and I think that that will help to orient us uh, in some interesting ways as we move forward uh, into this material. So, without further ado, let's do this. Um, I was we we started looking at this passage last time, and there were some things that I wanted to continue to. I said that there were some things I wanted to follow up on. Let me just read it again so we have it fresh in our minds, um, and then I'll talk about some of those other things. The Nalgrim are not of elf kind, nor of mankind, nor yet of Melkor's breeding. And the Noldor in Middle-earth knew not whence they, whence they came, holding that they were alien to the children, albeit in many ways like unto them. But in Valinor the wise have learned that the dwarves were made in secret by Aule, while earth was yet dark. For he desired the coming of the children of Iluvatar, that he might have learners to whom he could teach his crafts and lore, and he was unwilling to await the fulfillment of the designs of Iluvatar. Wherefore, though the dwarves are like the orcs in this, that they came of the willfulness of one of the Valar, they are not evil, for they were not made out of malice in mockery of the children, but came of the desire of Aule's heart to make things of his own after the pattern of the designs of Iluvatar. And since they came in the days of the power of Melkor, Aule made them strong to endure. Therefore, they are stone-hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and, and in enmity, and they suffer toil and hunger and hurt of body more heartily than all other speaking folk. And they live long, far beyond the span of men, and yet not forever. Aforetime the Noldor held that dying they returned unto the earth and the stone of which they were made. Yet that is not their own belief." 
For they say that Aule cares for them, and gathers them in Mandos, in halls set apart for them. And there they wait, not in idleness, but in the practice of crafts, and the learning of yet deeper lore. And Aule, they say, declared to their fathers of old, that Iluvatar had accepted from him the work of his desire, and that Iluvatar will hallow them, and give them a place among the children in the end. Then their part shall be to serve Aule, and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. Okay, so several things that I want to still point out about this passage here. One is I I love the way, I always love this, but I love the way in which Tolkien deals with uh, his previous works. <laughs> Tolkien Tolkien's revisions are so much fun. I've said this before, but Tolkien's revisions are so much fun. In places where he has written something that is publicly viewable, such as old chapter 5 of The Hobbit, for instance, right? He doesn't make a change, especially so radical as a change, as was made in the revision of chapter 5 of The Hobbit in the second edition, without actively incorporating that change itself into the story, right? But it goes beyond that. It's not only that instead of just quietly correcting errors and hoping nobody no, nobody notices, or even, uh, you know, drawing attention to it and apologizing or something like that, writing a little forward saying, I made a mistake and I've changed it and I'm sorry, right, or something like that. Um, the way that he makes the alteration itself part of the story Notice how he's doing that here, even about things which nobody else has ever seen, right? We can still see the outlines of Dwarves 1.0 in this paragraph. Do you see it? Right? Do you see where we can still discern the, the, you know, like the outline or the footprints of Dwarf 1.0, right? What, the most obvious reference comes at the very beginning when he says that the, they're not yet, they're, you know, nor yet of Melkor's breeding, right? He wants to mention that in order to say, no, 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 that's, um, that's, totally, that's totally not the case here, right? Um, but notice how he, um, he also embeds that idea in the entire new myth that he has generated explaining the origin of the dwarves. Wherefore, though, though the dwarves are like the orcs in this, that they came from the willfulness of one of the Valar, they are not evil, for they were not made out of malice in mockery of the children, but came of the desire of Aule's heart to make things of his own after the pattern of the designs of Iluvatar. Originally, his first idea about dwarves was that they were children of Melkor, just like the orcs. He's not forgotten that. He's changed his mind about that. But he doesn't just try to scrub that out. right? He doesn't just forget that. Instead, he, he makes a mythology which explains not only the true origin story of the dwarves, but also helps to explain why some people might make that mistake. As if the old version, as if the, the, the you know, uh, Book of Lost Tales version of the orcs 
is a text that he found that needs explanation, right? It's wrong, right? That's not the right story about dwarves. That, that thing that was written in the Book of Lost Tales, you know, that, that thing almost nobody has ever read, um, <laughs> that book that was never published, uh, that thing that was written in the Book of Lost Tales is incorrect, but there's a justification for that mistake, right? You can see why some elves might have told that story, might have said that dwarves were just like orcs and uh, creatures of, of Melkor. They're wrong, but there's, there's, a, there's an excuse for why that story, or how perhaps it was not even an elf who told that story, but the story got garbled, right? Uh, like people are telling the story of how the orcs were made in mockery of the children of Iluvatar by, uh, by Melkor, and somebody was also telling the story about how Aule formed the dwarves in imitation of the children of Iluvatar. But somewhere along the reception tradition of that story, things got crossed, right? And they got lumped in together. And you can see why they might, why that might happen, right? You could see how that false story would come about, right? But, um, uh, but it isn't, but, but, but it's not the full truth. It's not the real truth. And here is the, here's the mythic story that truly underlies that thing. But while clearing up the truth also explains the error. Isn't that, isn't that kind of thing amazing? Right? I, um... I love it. <laughs> I just love that. Um, uh, I just love that whole sort of approach to things uh, that Tolkien takes. Um, it is. Um, uh, it is just so much fun. Again, even though there is no need for this at all, um, a lot of people talk about how wonderful it is, the kind of depth that Tolkien gives to his stories. And one of the ways in which he builds that depth, one of the one of one of the kinds of depth that many people really admire is the way he he builds up this textual history for it, right? And one of the reasons why this happens, you know, one of the things that makes that stuff so good from Tolkien is this is this is just the way he thought all the time, right? He was constantly doing this, even just his own drafts. Right? His own drafts that almost nobody's ever seen before. Um, and yet he will still uh, build that into a textual history with whole, like, you know, um, theories of reception and interpretation and explanations for how wrong answers could have been gotten to. It's, um, uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I think that's really amazing. Um, but now another thing. Notice... Um, um, Notice a, a sort of similarity to this pattern that jumped out at me this just when I read it just now. I don't even think I noticed it last week. Um, the Nalgrim are not of elf kind, nor of mankind, nor yet of Melkor's breeding. And the Noldor and Middle-earth knew not whence they came, holding that they were children, were alien to the children, albeit in many ways like unto them. But in Valinor, the wise have learned that Right. Again, notice how he is framing his entire essay here, his entire narrative here. Once again, with an implicit 
textual frame. There are stories that are told about the dwarves because the Nolor in Middle-earth didn't know where the dwarves came from, holding that they were alien to the children. And so, therefore, stories that come from those times in Middle-earth are going to treat the dwarves as if they were alien to the children, albeit in many ways like unto them. When did they learn, they, the Noldor, when did the Noldor learn the truth? The Noldor learned the truth when they got, to Tol, when they got back to Tolaresia, right? In Valinor, the wise have learned, and this will have filtered down, right? How is this coming to us, right? Through Tolaresia, right? Um, on, I presume, you know, the Alfwina Express, um, the true knowledge has, has come from Valinor about this. But at the time when the Noldor were in Beleriand, they didn't know, right? And so therefore, we can already see he's acknowledging that there's going to be deviations in the text, in the textual traditions. If you're reading stories that were written by Noldor in Beleriand at that time, be prepared. You might read some things about dwarves that just don't fit with what he's explaining here, right? The true story has been told, has come from Valinor, right? Um, and so now we're getting this corrected version. So again, once more, um, uh, once more we get this, not an explicit, but an implicit um, textual tradition, right, um, surrounding the dwarves. And of course, one of the effects of this is simply that um, if he in doing his revising and his retcon, if any, in any of his previous stories, such as The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings even, right? Or any of the other versions of his legendarium, um, if in his process of revision, he ends up leaving some stuff in where you can tell the concept of dwarves in the stories that you're reading don't quite fit with what we've been told here, well... Now you'll know why, right? You should hardly be surprised by this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Abelard is asking, did um, uh, did the topic not come up between Aule and the Noldor, I assume you mean, before they left for Middle-earth? Um, uh, yeah, sure. What? We know already that the Valar, presumably including Aule, didn't talk a lot about the talk. They didn't talk about men either until Melkor told them about men. And uh, Melkor was able to make hay out of that fact, right? Um, so, yeah. Uh, it didn't... The, if the Noldor in Middle-earth don't know anything about dwarves or where they came from, logically speaking, Aule must not have told them. And it's not hard to imagine why Aule might not have mentioned them, right? I mean, Aule cares for them, but they're a little embarrassing, right? I mean, he would have to tell them the whole story about how he did wrong, right? Um, he didn't tell that story to the Nola. I mean, obviously, he didn't tell that story, but they've heard it since they got back, right? Um, because presumably they had questions after meeting the dwarves about the dwarves. Aule was not, um, 
was not afraid to answer the questions, but he apparently didn't bring it up, right? Make of that what we will. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, David. David Michael says, my name is Aule and I rebelled against Eru. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, he's he doesn't have to do that kind of, uh, yeah, this is not a, um, uh, you know, Rebels Anonymous uh, uh, session where he has to confess to the Noldor, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. JJ, that's an interesting parallel. JJ says it would be like telling folks about children resulting from cheating on a spouse. Possibly. Something like that, right? Like, does everybody need to know? Everybody doesn't necessarily need to know, right? Especially, like, if it's been, you know... If among the principles this has all been handled, right? That doesn't mean you have to talk to the neighbors about it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um... Right, exactly. Yeah, you're not ashamed of the child per se, but you don't really want to go into the origin. Yeah, and there's like, why would you? No need, right? Um, uh, and uh, and if you're talking to people whom, as far as you know, may never meet the children at all, right? Well, why talk about it? Um, notice, by the way, we don't get that story. That in itself is an interesting thing, isn't it? In the Book of Lost Tales... The Valar were the main characters of the story, and we were told a good deal about what they were thinking, why they did things, why they didn't, why they chose not to do things, um, because they were really the protagonists of the story. The story, the point of view of the narrative, excuse me, of the Book of Lost Tales is really sort of, especially the early stuff, is really fr uh, at the eye level of the Valar, right? Um as he revises stuff, as time goes on, Tolkien shifts that point of view more and more to the elves. Um, this becomes more and more of a uh, the elves telling their own stories and the things that they have heard, right? Um, and less, we get less about the Valar and what the Valar are thinking and what the Valar are planning. We get some of it, but we don't get nearly as much as we did uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. And so... What was Aule thinking? Why didn't Aule talk about this with the Noldor? Well, we can speculate, but we don't know. Uh, we're not told that story. Um, what we're told is what the elves knew and didn't know, and when they learned what they knew, right? Because that's the frame of reference um, of, of the story now. Um, yeah. Okay, so... Um, uh, Yeah, there's another thing I was going to emphasize from uh, this passage. Um, oh, yeah, notice... Um, yeah. As he's revising the dwarves, again, he doesn't just start from scratch, right? He doesn't say, okay, the dwarves, dwarf 1.0... That was, they were pretty nasty. Um, you know, Meme, the original Meme, was a was a uh, pretty dodgy character. Okay, the later Meme is a pretty dodgy character too. But uh, but anyway, um, 
instead of saying, okay, we're in Dwarf 3.0 now, things are better, right? Dwarves aren't like that. Dwarves aren't like that. Dwarves are, dwarves are totally different. Notice he doesn't do that, right? He, he they, therefore, they are stone hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity, right? That's how they were before too, right? What does he do? He takes the character that he gave them and he recontextualizes it, which both enables us to see it differently. Why are the dwarves so tough, so prickly, right? Um, so stubborn. Uh, why, why are these things true of dwarves? And his answer is not because they're evil and nasty. His answer is since they came in the days of the power of Melkor, Aule made them strong to endure. Because Aule was focused. He, he was trying to build a people, not only who would be learners uh, uh, to whom he could teach, but also because he wanted to make them able to resist Melkor. So that's their, those are their dominant traits, right? Um, it's the therefore that's new. Right? Not the traits. It's the therefore. Um, we now have a whole new contextualization for why dwarves are the way they are. And is it awesome? Like, are dwarves always great? Like, is or sometimes, is their dwarvishness a little bit unfortunate? A little bit much? A little bit undesirable? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes that happens. But what would you expect? It was a mistake. Aule's desire was was wrong, was inappropriate. Well-intentioned, not done in mockery. It was different from Melkor's, but it was similar to Melkor's error. It was a kind of fall. He repented of it right away. But it was a kind of fall. And therefore, there is some bad mixed up in the dwarf constitution uh, because there was some bad mixed into Aule's desires, into Aule's choices as he was making them. That doesn't make dwarves evil any more than Aule is evil, right? Um... But it contextualizes things. So once again, instead of changing them, instead of saying, hey, yeah, um, uh, dwarves are now different. Dwarves are now entirely awesome, right? No, he's just going to recontextualize what we already know. Notice how things like this, um, they're stone hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity. Think about Thorin at the gates of Erebor talking to Bard and the Elven King and threatening to throw Bilbo off the wall to his death, right? That's dwarves for you. Stone hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity, right? Does that mean that he's evil? That dwarves are evil? No. No, it's just how they are. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It certainly was done with good intention. Doesn't always pan out well, right? Wasn't really Iluvatar's plan, right? And he decided he was not going to amend 
what Aule made, right? So there are flaws in the design, and sometimes those cracks show. But of course, Thorin, when he was threatening to throw Bilbo off the wall, was Dwarf 2.0, right? He hadn't yet, he hadn't yet come out of his cocoon, uh, right, in, in, as uh, Dwarf 3.0, because uh, he wasn't on his deathbed yet. Um, so now when you go back and you look at, even when you get meme, right? He can now go back, he can now keep meme. Now, this is where, we, this is, this is, this is where meme can return. Because he can still have his um, really problematic curse-laying dwarf character in the Turin story um, and in the Hurin story, even more importantly, um, because he's still allowed for that, if you see what I mean. Um, Yeah. So, Cecilia... I'm not sure I agree with that exactly. Cecilia was saying, but then there's some bad in the elves too. Well, in one sense, yes. In the sense that they, some of them choose to do bad things, for sure. Right? But there's not bad in them in the same kind of way that there is in the dwarves. Um, Elves, clearly, are constitutionally good. Um, They are not prone to I like look at their sexual relationships, right? The way in which they like they just they don't they don't stray. They're not tempted to cheat on their spouses. They they're they're they don't they don't even understand that kind of impulse, right? Um elves are that doesn't mean that elves again, it is obviously true that elves can do wrong and can be bad. Um can make bad choices and set themselves on a path towards very great wickedness, right? But it's not how they're programmed, right? It's, um, but with dwarves, it is, um, it's just kind of how they're wired. Stone hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity. Right. Um, And that is they are constitutionally problematic in ways that is different, I think, both from ways in which humans might be constitutionally problematic and ways, certainly, in which elves is uh, are are, uh, constitutionally problematic. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. um, Yeah. Okay, so let's see. That was another thing I wanted to talk about here. Oh, yeah, we should at least touch on the ending here. Um, Notice the particular beauty of the destiny that Tolkien predicts for the elves. Sorry, for the dwarves. And Aule, they say declared to their fathers of old that Iluvatar had accepted from him the work of his desire, and that Iluvatar will hallow them and give them a place among the children at the end. What does that mean? That the dwarves will be saved? That the dwarves will um, 
Look, what does that mean? Then their part shall be to serve Aule and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. Notice the parallel here between the delegation that Iluvatar did for the Ainur in the Ainuindale, right? How he delegated to them the power, the authority uh, to shape things after their own thought, right? What has he done for Aule here? He has enabled Aule himself to delegate to other makers, to his own children, the children who are the offspring of his, Aule's, thought, right? And that they shall aid Aule, and Aule's role will be to help to remake Arda after the last battle. That's one of, it's going to be one of Aule's jobs, right? That is a, a reflection of, that is a, that is a manifestation of the part of uh, Iluvatar's mind that Aule was given in his creation, right? And the part of his mind that was given to the dwarves, his mind in turn, which was shared with the dwarves, his children. And Iluvatar is going to bless that, is going to sanctify that, because in the end, what Aule did was like what Iluvatar did. And Iluvatar is going to bless his um, uh, is 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 going to bless his uh, his choice and his children. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So notice also, and I think that this is important. There isn't the question of, like, what is the eternal destiny of the souls of dwarves isn't the question that's being asked and answered here. Um, you could say that in a sense it is. But I would say that although one could apply this towards the answering of that question, it's not the answer that Tolkien has given. Because in the end... I think to the dwarves, that's not the question that matters. Um, do they have a role? Do they have a purpose? Do they matter as people? Yeah, they do. Because they ha they are going to be hallowed. And that is going to be manifested by their aiding Aule. They will be instrumental in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. Um, that's what matters. That's the expression of that. Um, a mere question of, like, where are they going to spend eternity is not the question, apparently, that they are interested in. Um, yeah, Chad, exactly. They're going back to work. They're going back to work. Absolutely. Um, and that's the fulfillment that's that's happily ever after for the dwarves clearly happily ever after for the dwarves um and uh and i kind of love that i love the sense of their own 
their own identity. They don't care where they're going to live, right? You know, this is not a question of like, where will I go when I die? To them, the question is, what am I going to do when I die, <laughs> right? And the answer is something awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Abelard, we are so not talking about the question of what will orcs do for all eternity. Um, because we don't have the answer to that question. I, am, I shall not be drawn to going back to the orc question right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. In the darkness of Arda, already the Nalgrim wrought great works, for they had, even from the first days of their fathers, marvelous skill with metals and with stone, though their works had little beauty until they met the Noldor, until they had met the Noldor, and learned somewhat of their arts. And they gave their friendship more readily to the Noldor than to any others of elves or men, because of their love and reverence for Aule, and the gems of the gnomes they praised above all other wealth. But in that ancient time, the dwarves still wrought iron and copper rather than silver and gold, and the making of weapons and gear of war was their chief smithcraft. They it was that first devised mail of linked rings, and in the making of burnies and hauberks, none among, the, among elves or men have proved their equals. Thus they aided the Eldar greatly in their war with the orcs of Morgoth, though the Noldor believed that some of that folk would not have been loath to smithy also for Morgoth had he been in need of their work or open to their trade. For buying and selling and exchange were their delight, and the winning of wealth thereby, and this they gathered rather to hoard than to use, save in further trading. Um, okay, so once again, you can see not just here. We don't just see the outlines or the, you know, the footprints of Dwarf 1.0. Um, we can we can see the whole shape of Dwarf 1.0, right? They're not completely different. Again, he has not left behind the earlier traditions. All he's done is recontextualized it. Even Dwarf 2.0 were the ones who were the merchants who were selling cheerfully to both sides. Absolute, unashamed war profiteers um, who were making mail of linked rings um, uh, cheerfully for the orcs of Morgoth as well as for uh, the elves of Beleriand. Um, and um, and that they liked selling better than making. So, Feanor, look at that. Let's look at that closely now. Notice that he begins the paragraph by saying that they that already they wrought great works. Um, so, making things, um, having marvelous skill with metals and with stone, was with them from the beginning. Right, that's an original thing. It gets altered when the Noldor come in. Right, it's, it's informed by the Noldor in certain ways, and of course, the warlike situation that emerges in Beleriand changes their focus. Right, the making of weapons and gear of war was their chief smithcraft. Um, but then notice when he comes down to the buying and selling stuff. For buying and selling in exchange were their delight, and the winning of wealth thereby, and this they gathered rather to hoard than to use. 
But notice how he contextualizes that in the sentence before. Thus they aided the Eldar greatly in their war with the orcs of Morgoth, the, the, through the making of armor and of weapons, right? They were a great, great help. They were, not to, they were totally not just profiteers. They were a great help. Though the Noldor believed that some of that folk would not have been loath to smithy also for Morgoth had he been in need of their work or open to their trade, for buying and selling in exchange were their delight. That last sentence sounds to me equivocal in this context. Who's he talking about? Does he mean all dwarves? Or does he just mean some of that folk? You know, the kind of seedier side of the dwarves who might not have been loath to smithy for Morgoth also, you know, if the money was right. You see what I mean? Um, that there is a belief among the Noldor. Maybe it's unfounded, right? Um, perhaps they're totally wrong about this, and it's, and it's absolutely not true, but many of the Noldor, the Noldor did believe that some of the dwarves would have totally been willing to smithy for Morgoth and sell armor to the orcs, too. For buying and selling in exchange were their delight. The bad seeds among the dwarves, or all of them. And the, uh, and the winning of wealth thereby. And this they gathered rather to hoard than to use, save in further trading. Now remember, these are the same ones, the same dwarves who are going to be hallowed by Iluvatar and are going to work alongside Aule uh, in the reshaping of Arda, right? Um, so... It's I I have a hard time believing, um, I have a hard time believing that all of the dwarves find buying and selling in exchange their chief delight, and that all of them live this very dragon-like existence of winning wealth, gathering it to hoard rather than to use, uh, except perhaps in further trading. Exactly, Abelard. I think that we're seeing some of the stereotypes from version one, from Dwarf 1.0. Those stories were told by Noldor too, right? So there are some Noldor who believe that this is the case. So again, you might read stories that say this kind of thing about dwarves. So I'm, I'm letting you know this stuff is in circulation, right? Does that does that mean it's not true? Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true to varying extents. It was true of Thorin, right? Look look how Thorin fell prey to the dragon sickness when he got to Thor's horde, right? Um, that business about... I mean, that... That verb to hoard... Is a pretty conspicuous one, isn't it? Um, Jack, I agree. They're susceptible to corruption. Right? Um, it doesn't mean that all dwarves like buying and selling in exchange more than they like um, making great works. Right? Um, yeah. I don't... I don't think so. Um... And, Jack, yeah, you're right to point out that um, Aule's Maiar 
have a, a rather checkered track record when it comes to resisting corruption their own selves, right? Uh, Sauron and Saruman both are uh, uh, questionable examples, right, in this regard. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty sketchy. Um, and so that some dwarves would also be susceptible to corruption in this way. It does seem um, the place that that sentence, the last sentence here, has in this paragraph does suggest to me that this perspective, um, the delight in buying and selling in exchange for the purpose of winning wealth, um, I think that's a corruption. I don't think there's any attempt to make that sound like that's a perfectly natural and delightful uh, part of being a dwarf, right? Um, notice the... Um, again, I come back to the primacy of their work and their skill that we get in the opening of this paragraph, right? And how this sort of degeneration into the mere hoarding of wealth, um, not, not making things anymore, just buying and selling, right? Just accumulating wealth so that you can use it in further trading to get more wealth, right? And make your hoard ever greater. I don't think he's suggesting that that's okay activity, right? Um, the, the use of the word horde, the dragon word that is used there, I think is a pretty clear indicator that this is not a good thing. And where he starts off about the works, the marvelous skill that they showed in the first days of their fathers, right? Uh, even before the Noldor returned in the darkness of Arda, it is this is where they start, not in collecting wealth, gems, which they didn't have yet because they had Methanoldor, or gold or silver, which they didn't uh, prioritize. Iron and copper were what they focused on in their old days. The shift from iron and copper to silver and gold seems to be part of a, a more downward spiral. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, James, I probably shouldn't have brought it up if I'm not prepared to discuss it. I don't want to get too sidetracked on it. Um, I think I more or less agree with you about the dragon sickness being an external factor that affects others as well. Yes. Um... But there are two things I would say about that. One, although non-dwarves are definitely affected by the dragon sickness, such as the Master of Lake Town, obviously. Um, but of course, it's not a good look in the Master of Lake Town either, obviously, nor good for him in the long run. Um, there is an implication that this kind of desiring of treasure and the desire to hoard treasure is part of the... Um, that there's a real dwarvish inclination to that. Back in Dwarf 2.0, i.e. chapter one of The Hobbit, right? Um, 
the desire of the hearts of dwarves that Bilbo experiences uh, in chapter one of The Hobbit is not entirely a good thing. It's not a wholly evil thing either, but it's not entirely a good thing. Um, look how late it ends up making him for dinner, for one thing. Right. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, James, uh, yeah. Whether or not the dragon sickness is being spoken of in precisely the same terms, and certainly others other than dwarves, even the Elven King has some dragon sickness moments, right, in his attitude towards the treasure and his greed. Um, nevertheless, I think it's pretty clear that the hoarding that is being described in that last sentence is a bad thing, and not just a bad thing that dwarves do, or that all dwarves are prone to, but rather when dwarves give in to this, it is a corruption of what they themselves do. Again, just as the shift from iron and copper, I think, is to silver and gold, is not a, a great direction. It means what they make is more beautiful, um, but, um, but I don't think it's a, it's a moral advance, right? Uh, but rather probably... Uh, probably the reverse. Exactly, Everett. Uh, it is a contrast between aesthetic and utility metals. I mean, copper is kind of pretty too, um, but um, uh, but very useful as well, right? Iron for its strength and uh, uh, iron for its strength and and copper for its ductility. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, there's, um, there's a lot more that can be, that can be said about that. Yeah. Form versus function, something along those lines. And again, when, when the attention shifts away from function and towards aesthetics, I think that's not a, I'm not saying it's an evil thing that working in gold and silver is intrinsically bad. Um, but it seems to be, there does seem to me to be a kind of, this is an, a simplification, but almost like a kind of a spectrum from working with marvelous skill with metals and stone in the darkness of Arda through to those dwarves, presumably a subset, um, who delight only in buying and selling in exchange and winning and hoarding wealth thereby. Um, and the last thing I would point out about this is notice the role of the Noldor in this. Um, the dwarves gave their friendship more readily to the Noldor because of their love and reverence for Aule. They had something in common, right? Uh, and they loved their gems. But it's the influence of... The, if the step from silver and copper... or Sorry, from iron and copper to silver and gold... Um, is a risky a dangerous step, um, an ominous step, a downwards step, morally. Uh, it was the Noldor that seemed to have prodded them in that direction. 
though their works had little beauty until they met the Noldor and learned somewhat of their arts. Did the teaching of the Noldor make the dwarves better? Made their works more beautiful? Is that a good thing? Yeah, sure, that's a good thing. Except when it's not, right? There seems to be some danger, some moral danger attached to the increased beauty of the works of the dwarves. Um, that shift again from function to form, that shift from utility to aesthetics, um, that step down the road from, you know, making great works with marvelous skill in the darkness of Arda down to the winning and hoarding of wealth for its own sake, right? Um, it is... I'm not saying that the Noldor set out to corrupt the dwarves, but th um, there does seem to have been, uh, at the very least, ambivalent uh, results of that intervention. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Feanar, you were right. Um, we saw the Noldor themselves go through a shift in their creating in Valinor. It's not the same shift, right? Um, with them, it was about beginning to make weapons was the major difference there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, this is a really interesting glimpse, though, into the Noldor, isn't it? And I can't help but think of the Noldor that go wrong. Worse, more generally. This is a question we talked about for a while at Mountain Moot in September last year. It's a question I kind of posed to the room and we discussed it for a bit. Why is it that sub-creators so often go wrong? in Tolkien's world, right? If you find somebody who really distinguishes, distinguishes themselves as a maker, as a sub-creator, you've got a pretty high probability that that person is going to go down the wrong path, right? What, what, why should that be? Why should Tolkien simultaneously have a really high view, take a really high view of the importance and the beauty and the significance of sub-creation and yet also show that those who are most inclined to sub-creation and have the greatest gifts and talents in the area of sub-creation also go wrong very frequently, right? At a much higher rate and with more catastrophic results than almost anybody else who goes wrong. Um, I wonder if the Noldor, if the indirect and presumably unintentional uh, corruptive influence that the Noldor seem to have on the dwarves here might not um, give us some clues into how that works or why it works. If you see what I mean. Anyway. Um, okay. Let's talk about beards. The Nalgrim were ever, as they still remain, short and squat in nature. 
They were deep-breasted, strong in the arm, and stout in the leg, and their beards were long. Indeed, this strangeness, uh, this strangeness they have, that no man nor elf has ever seen a beardless dwarf, unless he were shaven in mockery, and would then be more like to die of shame than of many other hurts that would to us seem more deadly. For the Naugrim have beards from the beginning of their lives, male and female alike, nor indeed can their work womenkind be discerned by those of other race, be it in feature or in gait or in voice, nor in any wise save this, that they go not to war, and seldom save at direst need issue from their deep bowers and halls. It is said also that their womenkind are few, and that save their kings and chieftains, few dwarves ever wed. Wherefore, their race multiplied slowly, and now is dwindling. Okay. Now, here, this is one of the places that I wanted particularly uh, to connect to what we see in Appendix A, right? Um, I think it's a really interesting question of... Um, I think it's a really interesting question of, um, like, which came first, right? So you'll remember there's that passage. I should have put it up on a slide, but I didn't. Um, there's that passage about uh, people not being able to tell the difference between male and female dwarves um, in Appendix A, right? Um, it doesn't say much about it. It's a very kind of passing reference there in Appendix A. Um, but he leans into it much more explicitly here, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, oh, hang on, I wanted to comment on Fanaro's point here. The idea that dwarves can die from beard loss, right, uh, gets interesting when we think back to the times we hear about dwarves tearing their beards. If they are physically forcing follicles from their faces, we can interpret that as something ritualistically punitive or at least fey or even masochistic. In any event, uh, I think we can at least recognize the tearing of beards as nothing short of a sign of real despair. Yes, it really does uh, lay emphasis on that. Um, yeah, thank you, JJ, for quoting that. Okay, so I, I don't have it on screen, but I will read it. Uh, um, and yes, Abelard, that was done in grief. Um, yes, yeah, that, that was done in grief. And you're right uh, that you've read of humans doing this in grief as well. Um, but um, uh, but it um, it really it emphasizes how that that's not just a when a dwarf does that, it's a bigger deal. And this help us, helps us understand how it's a bigger deal. Um, but, um, yeah, okay, so let's go back to that, uh, JJ. It was said by Gimli that there are few dwarf women, probably no more than a third of the whole people. They seldom walk abroad except at great need. They are in voice and appearance and in garb if they must go on a journey, so like to the dwarf men that the eyes and ears of other peoples cannot tell them apart. This has given rise to the foolish opinion among men that there are no dwarf women and that dwarves grow out of stone. No, those were dwarf... That was dwarf... Was it 1.0 or 2.0? Might have still been true of dwarf 2.0. That is, it's part of the older tradition that dwarves grew out of the stone. It said that explicitly. I think it was 1.0 that the dwarves grew out of the stone. Um, and uh, 
So that's another example of him taking one of his earlier things. And also that there were no dwarf women. Like he said that explicitly. There are no dwarf women. Dwarves just grow out of the stone. Um, and he, instead of like pretending that never happened, he's like, oh yeah, no, that's, um, that's not even like something the, the Noldor said, not knowing any better, right? That's a human tradition, right? It's a foolish opinion among men that there are no dwarf women, but that dwar- the dwarves grow out of stone. Uh, and it's interesting because he quotes that grow out of stone. It's literally a quote from what he wrote earlier, um, which is fun. Um, but anyway, notice what he's... And also, yes, David Michael, the whole thing is then contextualized um, into... It was said by Gimli, right? Um, this is just secondhand reporting, right? We don't really know for sure. But look at what it says about the like the likeness of dwarf men and dwarf women. Um, they are in voice and appearance and in garb if they must go on a journey. So, okay, so their voices sound like men. Their appearance looks like men. And their dress, their garb, their clothing is like men. So, they're so like dwarf men that the eyes and ears of other people cannot tell them apart. Right? Um, so when traveling by their clothes and their voices and their appearance, they are easy to mistake for dwarf men. Um, how deep does that go? What exactly does that mean? Notice how he takes that idea and he develops it here. Right? Um, the Nalgrim, he now he states now clearly and unequivocally, the Nalgrim have beards from the beginning of their lives, male and female alike, which was not explicitly said. It maybe was implied, but it wasn't. It wasn't certainly not made a big deal of in the earlier text, right? Nor indeed can their womenkind be discerned by those of other race, be it in feature, or in gait, or in voice, nor in any wise save this. That is how they act, uh, to some extent. And interestingly, um, what he says about how they act, like that thing which makes it obvious that they're not men, is that they never go on journeys, (laughs) right? He's changed his mind about that. Um, You're not going to meet a dwarf woman on the road, right? Uh, Because now, he says, they go not to war and they seldom save it direst need issue from their deep bowers and halls, right? So you're certainly not going to find one just wandering around, right? Uh, according according to this uh, to this version here, um, so um, yeah yeah, um, okay so um, so that's interesting. No, again, notice how he how much more he emphasizes not just the thing about the beards, feature, or in gait or in voice. Um, in feature, their faces. Right. If you look carefully at their faces, dwarf male faces, female faces are going to look exactly the same. Right. Not only beards, but same features in gait, how they walk. Right. Their bodies like they, they don't have there. There's no con, uh, there's no similar difference in hip structure between dwarf women and dwarf men, as is perceptible in human men and human women. Right. You're not going to see any difference in gait. So their faces are the same. Their bodies are structured the same way. And again, their voices sound the same. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, David Michael, Christopher said explicitly here, and we'll see, maybe he'll come back to it. uh, And if he does, we'll come back to this again um, in volume 12 in the peoples of Middle Earth. 
Um, but he said explicitly here that this was written in in, in 1958. I missed that last time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And th- that development makes a great deal more sense, especially the because the, not only the further development, but the contradiction. Because there is a contradiction. You're, you're not going to meet them on the road, right? And not only that, but notice how he... Um, how he dials back even the marriage thing. Again, in Appendix A, he says only about a third of the population are women and not all of them marry for various reasons, right? Um, But notice what he says here about that now. It is said also that their women kind are few. Few, he says, he doesn't say a third. He says their women kind are few and that save their kings and chieftains, few dwarves ever wed. He doesn't just say that Somewhat less than, uh, somewhat you know that that less than a third of dwarves are married because only one third of them are women and not all of the women marry, which is what he says in Appendix A, right? What he's saying now is that very few dwarves ever wed, period. Save for their kings and chieftains, few dwarves ever wed, and their women kind are few. Sounds like he might now be suggesting it's less than a third, right? I, again, I think that we can see several ways in which his ideas are different between here and Appendix A. Right. Um, uh, now, again, it, 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 had he written this sooner, I mean, I, I, th- I would think that we could understand that in that way. Um, but thinking about the entire progression from Dwarf 1.0 and onwards, it seems to me to make more sense for... Appendix A to have come first. And this sounds like, this feels like an elaboration on that and a clarification of some of the things that we're saying. The whole, like, if you meet one on the road thing, um, it's just kind of tossed off there, right? Like, you know, to give some kind of illustration for, like, some kind of context for the statement of how they can be confused for dwarf men, right? Um, well, when would you get the opportunity to confuse them for dwarf men? Well, if you met them on the road or something, right? You might mistake them for dwarf men. But he wasn't doing... Um, uh, 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 he wasn't doing um, the um, the whole thing here, right? He, was, he wasn't doing the... Um, he wasn't doing the full world-building thing at that time there in Appendix A. Um but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. I see. David and Michael, we'll talk about that whole passage when we get there in Peoples of Middle-Earth. Um, I want to focus on what, we're, on what we're getting here uh, and the shape that, that Christopher has told us here. Um, but, yeah, no, that, it, we, we'll, be, we'll definitely be coming back to this again um, uh, later on. But, um, uh Anyhow, okay, so wherefore their race multiplied slowly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, yeah, Dennis, exactly. What he's saying is that the, their womenkind never went to war. Which, if their womenkind are quite few, and, very, and, and there are very few marriages, yeah, yeah, you'd think... Um, 
any amount of war casualties among the women would probably be very bad thing for the uh, continuation of the species. Um, and it would make a certain amount of sense that they would not, in fact, go to war. Um, yeah, so, okay, so, like, again, what is the direction of his thought here? What is he, what is he sort of, you know, how is, how is this sort of growing in his, uh, in his mind? Um, oh, and I, I wanted to come back and answer uh, on the dwarf, the shaving thing. Yes. Um, oh, I, f I forget who. Uh, yes, David Michael. Yeah, it was you earlier on. Um, was pointing out the significance of the first person pronoun here. Uh, no man nor elf has ever seen a beardless dwarf unless he were shaven in mockery and then uh, and would then be more like to die of shame than of many other hurts that to us would seem more deadly. Who's us? Who's who's speaking? Who's speaking here? Um, I'm not sure. And I think it's genuinely uncertain, perhaps, because I think we're still in quoth Alfwina territory, as far as I can tell. So is, would seem, would, uh, to us would seem, is this an Alfwina interjection? So us being men? Or is this us, like, is that Pengalod speaking, for instance, and Alfwina quoting it? Right. Um, if I had to guess, I would say um, elves. <laughs> I say that just at the same time Abelard said I would say men. Also very plausible. The reason I would say elves is that from what we can see, the pattern of the quoth Alfwina stuff, um, when Alfwina is speaking in his own voice, from a human perspective. It seems to be in like asides and tags at the end of things and footnotes, right? Whereas the uses that are speaking in the midst of the flow of the narrative seem to be the elves. Um, but it, I mean, it's all, it's all very fragmentary and hard to guess from uh, Christopher's, from what Christopher gives us here anyway. So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, paragraph eight does seem to imply that this whole section comes from the elves, and we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, right. Here are the words of Pengalod concerning exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, and it is interesting to think the hurts that seem more deadly to the Noldor. Um, are some pretty significant hurts indeed, right? So that's kind of fun. But um, anyway, all right, let's keep going. Uh, so anyway, well, no, last thing on the beards. It does seem to me that there is a development in Tolkien's thought here. But more importantly, there is a development of what he is emphasizing, right? And of how he is emphasizing things. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And what he is, how he is developing their, the concept of their culture. We know that dwarf beards are important from meeting Gimli, right? Just think about the history of the role of dwarf beards in stories. The dwarves that we meet are bearded from when we first meet them. 
from when we meet Meme back in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, the dwarf beards are emphasized and get used in, um, uh, you know, colloquial expressions of the dwarves and things when we meet them and get to travel with them and get to know them better in The Hobbit. Um, and yet, we've still not really worked it into the world building. We get a clearer sense when we meet Gimli and travel with him in The Lord of the Rings that beards are very important uh, to the dwarves. But we still don't... You know, there's still much that we don't know about that. That Tolkien is inventing, developing, and progressively explaining as he moves forward. Yeah. Um, now, their language. The father tongue of the dwarves Aule himself devised for them, and their languages have thus no kinship with those of the Quendi. The dwarves do not gladly teach their tongue to those of alien race, and in use they have made it harsh and intricate, so that of those few whom they have received in full friendship, fewer still have learned it well. But they themselves learn swiftly other tongues, and in converse they use as they may the speech of elves and men with whom they deal. Yet in secret they use their own speech only, and that, it is said, is slow to change, so that even their realms and houses that have been, that have been long and far sundered may to this day well understand one another. In ancient days the Naugrim dwelt in many mountains of Middle-earth, and there they met mortal men, they say, long ere the Eldar knew them. Whence it comes that of the tongues of the Easterlings many show kinship with dwarf speech rather than with the speeches of the elves. I have to admit, I have a hard time understanding the last bit. That is, if very few, if the dwarves don't teach their language to anybody, and only a few have been received in full friendship, meaning that they hear the dwarf language, and of those people, fewer still have learned it well, how is it that it influenced the language of the human, of the Easterlings? Like, how did it come to influence them if so few of them would have known it or heard it? Now, Gimli's shouting it at the top of his lungs all the time. So there's secret and then there's secret, right? Uh, you could certainly pick up words just being near a dwarf, um, uh, perhaps, but uh, even if you don't learn the entire language. Um, but, um, but still, I, this is... It is really interesting that he introduces this concept of Easterling languages in particular that show kinship with dwarf speech rather than with the speeches of elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Chad points out that they do write it down in Kirth. Like, they carve it into stone in Kirth. Um, uh, yeah, but still we're told that others don't, um, don't learn it. Um, it is possible, JJ, that although they teach it to few, those few are not themselves so cautious. I think that that's, that that's possible. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, but um, in any case, this is an old idea of Tolkien's. That is, that 
Kuzdul is an Aule Conlang, right? Um, maybe the petty dwarves spilled it. Abelard, you think it's why they got banished, right? Um, running, uh, running rogue language classes for humans, right? Probably what they did wrong. Um, but anyway, yeah, the idea that the idea that Kuzdil was an Aule Conlang from the beginning. Um, is an old idea that was in the Lamas, the tale of uh, the tree of tongues uh, that Tolkien was writing way back in 1937. Um, uh, so yes, this, um, this idea is an old idea and that it therefore has no kinship with the languages of the Quendi. Um, this would, this of course is part of the fun for Tolkien, the philologist and language inventor. Um, not only to be able to invent languages which he can then relate to each other in an interesting way, but also to then create a separate language which is wholly unrelated in its origins and structure from those other languages. Um, yeah, so um, again, that's, a, that's a, a, a fun situation, sort of philological situation that he sets for himself. Uh, now, of course... He spends much less time inventing Kuzdul than he um, uh, than he does working with uh, his Elvish languages. Um, so in, there's a sense in which he kind of doesn't get around to it, right? Doesn't get around to um, uh, um, fully sort of indulging in this uh, little linguistic puzzle that he set. For himself, Chad says that's why it's a secret. He didn't make it, yeah. Um, or Chad, you could say maybe he did make more Kuzdul. He just kept those papers secret, right? They haven't found them uh, because uh, he wanted to keep the dwarf language secret. Um, you know what I wonder, and I don't know enough uh, to know the answer to this question. It occurs to me that Kuzdul was designed to be like a Semitic language. Not exactly a Semitic language, but like a Semitic, a Semitic language. And therefore, pretty far removed from the Elvish languages that he was developing. But do you know what else is kind of like a Semitic language? Adunayak is kind of like a Semitic language. That is, that Kuzdul and Adunayak do not seem as wholly disconnected from each other as Kuzdul is meant to be from the Elvish languages, from Sindar and Quenya. So I'm wondering if... Remember that Adunayak is late, right? Adunayak only emerged as a language when he was two-thirds of the way through writing The Lord of the Rings, right? When he stopped and did his Numenor slash Notion Club papers slash Adunayak kick in the middle of, right, or two-thirds of the way through writing The Lord of the Rings. Um, but, um, yeah, when he does make Adunayak, I wonder if he's sitting there saying, well... Okay, I've made this fun new language, Adunayak. 
but it's not totally separate. Like it's not wholly unlike the, the you know, technically if the dwarves language is completely secret and Aule made it up just for them and it's unconnected therefore to any of the other languages, there shouldn't be any languages that have, you know, philological similarities to Kuzdul. But Adonaiic kind of does a little bit, I think. This is where I don't know enough. I think, from what I've seen and, and read, that seems to be the case. So I wonder if he's like, well, there's probably got to be an explanation for this. Um, there are tongues among the humans that have some influence from dwarf language. So, you know, not unheard of. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. But of course... He's also doing one of his cleverest retcons when he says um, that uh, they used the speech of those around them to uh, uh, th that they they spoke in those languages. Right. This, of course, explains why the dwarves in The Hobbit all have Norse names. Almost all have Norse names. Why almost every dwarf in The Hobbit, as well as almost every wizard in The Hobbit, have Norse names. Um, but anyway, let's keep going. Here's that passage in paragraph eight. I knew we were going to get to it. Here end the words that Pengalod spoke to me concerning the dwarves, which are not part of the Penas as it was written, but come from other books of lore, from the Lamas. Uh, that, that's the, the tree of tongues. The Dorganas and the Quintale Ardenomion, quoth Alfwina. I love that he continues to complicate the textual history, right? Um, is this going to be part of the published Silmarillion too? And by the way, this this sounds like something written in 1958 rather than 1951, right? Um, when he's not... I, I don't think he really thinks at this point that he's going to produce the Lamas, the Dorganas, and the Quintale Ardenomion for publication, right? As he was, the Lamas was one of the things he was trying to get published in 1937. Um, and um, anyway, there's... Um, uh, this seems to be rather... Rather than pointing to other works that he was actually going to write and wanted to include in the published Silmarillion. Um, this seems to be instead a mere complication of the textual history, developing the ideas of like all of these other works that the elves are writing and that Alfwina is drawing on and translating and transmitting in some form or other, right? Um, uh, onwards uh, to people. Um, so, he still he still has this core framing idea, um, but this does not sound to me so much like again I'm trying to whip these books together uh, for publication. Um, okay, I think 
um, I think that's the end of uh, uh, the dwarf discussion. Let me just pause to go back to talk about one thing that I know many of you, a couple of you were teasing me about it. Um, some people, you know, were joking with me when I was talking about this. They're like, well, gosh, this this is, you know, this has got to be a sensitive thing for you to talk about because of all the crap that people were giving me about women, uh, bearded women dwarves last fall. Um, not at all. Not at all. Um, let me let me explain that situation a little bit. And because what I was talking about there is I still think a really important thing in that primary text. Um, what I was talking about in the actual interview with people rather than in the final edited version that was put out, um, the context in which I said the things that I said in that video uh, where they led with me saying Tolkien didn't say that dwarves had that dwarf women had beards. I was talking about the difference between the movie and the books. How in the movie of The Lord of the Rings, a big deal is made out of bearded dwarf women. Um, it becomes a recurring joke and a really popular joke um, about the fact that dwarf women have beards. And I was giving it as one example of ways in which people um, read things into the book that are emphasized in the films and are not mentioned in the books. And I said, which is perfectly true, that there is no reference to dwarf women having beards in the books. I did, in fact, go on to say there's only one place in the appendix where you can kind of infer that that's probably true. The indirect statement about how they can be mistaken for dwarf men, how likely they are to be mistaken, even though it emphasizes the clothing and, uh, and the voice as much as the appearance, and it speaks less clearly, uh, far less clearly than it does uh, in, in this later work. The point, of course, that I was, was, was not at all even suggesting that at that point Tolkien was not thinking that dwarf women had beards or that he was against the idea of dwarf women having beards. The point that I was making is it makes no part of the story. It is not emphasized at all. And there are many, I was, I was pointing, because we were talking about things that people, uh, ways in which people, especially from the films, uh, things that have kind of entered into the, uh, the, the, the concept of like what Tolkien wrote, of what the Lord of the Rings story is. Uh, sometimes they come in straight from the films, stuff that the films is made up. Sometimes it's things that the films are bringing in from other places. Sometimes it's things that are just sort of emphasized in, uh, or sometimes even from other uh, works of Tolkien, even things that come in from the Silmarillion that are mentioned in the Silmarillion but are not mentioned in The Lord of the Rings. And that people get in their heads that like, it says this in The Lord of the Rings. And it's not true that it says it in The Lord of the Rings. Um, so that's um, exactly, Chad. I was talking about the Jacksonian knee-jerk effect and so many of the ways in which people tend to say, tend very quickly to say, if um, uh, if dwarves, or, you know, like if, if, if the film shows something, then, uh, like, that means it's in Tolkien, right? And 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 you've got it. You've got you've got to sort of follow that. The hilarious thing about that uh, was that 
you know, after that video came out and I was getting all this flack on the internet about this because I seem to be saying that, you know, in the, the way that they edited that, uh, that line for me, the way they took that statement out of the context of like the 15 minute conversation we were having about that and not only put it in isolation, but like put it in the first five seconds of the video, um, made it sound like I was just declaring that like Tolkien never said it ever anywhere. And it's not true. Um, and that's not in a, a, at all what I was saying. But the funny thing was, um, in that first day when I was getting all of this flack about it, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the people that were yelling at me, uh, kept showing clips from the film where Gimli talks about bearded dwarf women, um, as evidence against the statement that I was saying. And I'm like, that's exactly what I was talking about there. Um, anyway, it was, uh, it, that was, I, I, I found that particularly and interestingly ironic. Um, but anyway, my, but I, it's, I, so I wanted to talk about that, not just because I, I don't want to act like it's some elephant in the room or, or a, thing, a thing that I am ashamed of or something. Um, and it's fun to talk. This, of course, the, the passages that we were the passage that we were reading today, uh, paragraph four about the dwarf beards. Right. Um, man, I got that quoted at me as if I'd never read it before so many times in the days after that video came out. Um, but um uh, anyway, um, so not only did I just want to kind of, you know, acknowledge it and, uh, and, and address that, but I think it's relevant because I think it's relevant to, as we're stepping back here and looking at how these ideas developed in Tolkien's mind, um, I think that it is, it is clear that at the very least, Tolkien did not make the choice to make the concept of bearded dwarven women more clear in the appendix. Uh, was that idea in his head? I think it very likely was in his head already by the time he wrote Appendix A. But he doesn't make it explicit, whereas he does make it explicit here, right? In this thing that Christopher says uh, was written later. Maybe he already had that idea in his head, but he didn't include it. It, he, it was not an important part of the story that he was telling. He chose not to highlight that, even if it were to be true. And that's all I was ever saying about that, is that it doesn't, Tolkien did not choose that. Not only did he not choose even to include that explicitly in the appendices, he didn't, he certainly did not foreground it in the story in anything like the way that the Peter Jackson films chose to foreground it. Um, uh, so that they, uh, you know, they to make it into this sort of running joke and things. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, it was, um, uh, it, <laughs> that was a really interesting moment in so many ways. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, David Michael, it was so funny. It was so funny though. I, 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 even like, even in response when I try, was trying to explain, when I was like, well, what I was talking about there is the way that people are taking the story from the film and they're, they, and they're kind of, they don't, you know, many of them don't even realize that what they're doing is projecting the story from the film uh, onto the books, which does not tell that story, in fact. And again, then they kept, you know, sending me film clips and I'm like, you know, I, I, I get it. I get it. Um, but <laughs> anyway, it was a fun time. It was a fun time. Um, all right. Uh, um, next, we're going to talk about... All right, reaching down my copy of the book. Um, 
we're going to finish the Quinta next time. We're going to talk about Of Men. Um, I actually don't have all that many things to say about Of Men um, because the, of, you know, the, the, the text uh, Of Men that we get is, is we get the published Silmarillion text, basically, uh, Of Men. And we don't get... Uh, so there, there are a few things we will talk about uh, in regards to that. But I want to go ahead and encourage you to begin, because I've been asking you to read to the end of the Quenta for several weeks now anyway, um, and I would like to encourage you to read the beginning um, of the Wanderings of Hurin. Um, and as often, this book has been really, really hard uh, to find good, like, breaks in which to... Um, uh, um, in which to start and stop. So let's say this. Um, in when my hardcover edition, it's on page 271. Um, we're going to get a long introduction of the wanderings uh, of Horn from Christopher. That's what I want to uh, sort of focus on uh, most next time. Um, when you get to the passage that begins, now Hurin coming to Dinbar. Uh, summoned his strength and went alone towards the dark feet of the Echoriad. Stop there. <laughs> we won't go. Uh, we won't go further than that. So we'll do through the end of the Quenta, and if uh, possible, if 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 we get to it, we'll do the beginning of the uh, uh, of the Wanderings of Hurin there uh, from there. So, okay, it's the same number in the Harper Collins paperback. Okay, cool, awesome. Yes, we we, we get Lady Halleth exactly. Yeah, so. So that's where we're going to, that's that's where to stop reading. That's what we're going to discuss next week. Thanks everybody for joining me tonight. Um, And uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye now.